From the shores of the Pacific coast and waves of the shining sea to the purple mountains and the majesty of the West. These are the stories that unite 12 institutions in a shared commitment to excellence, bound by the Western spirit of innovation and opportunity. You're listening to At The Peak, the podcast featuring stories and conversations from around the Mountain West. Here is your host, Jesse Kurtz. Today's guest is one of the most accomplished athletes in the history of American sports. He's a Super Bowl winner, a war veteran, accomplished author, and a multiple Hall of Famer, former Air Force defensive lineman, Chad Hennings. Chad, appreciate you making some time for us here on the At The Peak Podcast. Jesse, happy to be with you. Uh, You grew up in a small town in Iowa where you were an all-state football player, a state wrestling champion, and having lived in the state of Iowa for a few years myself, I appreciate the values that are held so dear to the folks there in the state of Iowa. Hard work, family-first mentality. What was it like for you growing up in Iowa? Phenomenal experience. um, I I learned the great American work ethic growing up on a farm, being able to work with my father, my grandfather, my brothers, you know, side by side with them. Um, we were a fairly close-knit family. It, it was a phenomenal upbringing, taught me a lot about the aspects and virtues of commitment, of overcoming obstacles, a lot of the, the traits that helped me, you know, eventually become the athlete that I was able to, to, to become. And being a great student athlete, um, you were wanted by many colleges. What universities offered you scholarships? Where did you entertain the idea of perhaps going and furthering your career as a student athlete? Uh, I was recruited by, well, the two local D1 schools in Iowa, Iowa State and University of Iowa. But they were kind of late to the game. Uh, I wasn't really highly recruited as a junior. I had a so-so experience regarding, you know, just uh, all conferences. A football player made it to the state wrestling tournament as as a junior. But then my senior year, I kind of was a late bloomer, and I really kind of blossomed. Uh, particularly when I won the state champion wrestling at the heavyweight position. That's when a lot of schools started knocking on my doors. But I had, at that point in time, I was committed to the Air Force Academy. I wanted to go there. I wanted to kind of spread my wings and have a different collegiate experience than I would have having gone to a traditional uh, college and a traditional football program. And so what were some of the determining factors in enrolling at the Air Force Academy? You say a different experience. What exactly were you looking for? Again, I was looking for an experience to be challenged both academically, athletically, but also uh, from a character perspective to learn what it meant to be, what it means to be a leader, to to be able to lead and to to have a hands-on experience in that regard, as well as to travel and to have an experience of going to different Air Force bases, of being able to fly glider aircraft, of being able to fly single-engine Cessnas at the time. Um, to just have a multitude of experience that would help me become, you know, one, first and foremost, a better student athlete, but would prepare me for life after graduating from, from college. On the football field, you start your career as a tight end, but they move you to defensive tackle your sophomore year. Why did the coaches make that move? What did they tell you, and what were your initial thoughts in that move? 
um, was very, actually very hesitant. I was like, okay, uh, what are these guys thinking? Um, but it was a matter of trust. I trusted Coach DeBerry. I trusted Coach Miller, my position coach. trusted Coach Inga, my, my tight ends coach, that this would be the best move. It was basically out of necessity. They wanted the junk tackle, we called, which was our predominantly our three technique, wanted to be someone that was uh, you know, fairly athletic and of size and strength because that was kind of the key component for that defense that, that we ran, that 52 defense. And the year prior, Chris Funk had just graduated, and he was the Western Athletic Conference player of the year, defensive player of the year. So it was big shoes to fill. So I was a little nervous, a little apprehensive. I did play D-line in high school, but I thought I was going to be you know, playing tight end. But it's, hey, it all ended up turning out pretty good, and I took really took to it like a fish to water. It was it was just from my wrestling experience, and from I, I continued to grow, be, get bigger, faster, stronger, and the position was just I, I was created to play that position. Uh, the 1985 season, uh, where you guys really blossomed, one of the greatest seasons in Air Force history. The Falcons went 12 and one, beat Texas in the Blue Bonnet Bowl, finished top five in the polls. When you look back what made that team so special what made that team uh you know what sort of components allowed it to achieve at that high of a level i think you just you nailed it with just calling it a team we we were really no all-stars in that team there was a lot of great athletes well actually a couple myself and scott thomas couple future college hall of famers but we played well together as a team in all three phases, uh, whether on offense, defense, as well as special teams. On defense, we had the philosophy of the bend but don't break. We were undersized compared to a lot of the, particularly as defensive linemen, to the offensive linemen that we played. But the scheme fitted us to a T. We were able to execute extremely well. And then offensively, that's what Air Force has been known as being very disciplined on the ball, running the, the wishbone offense and with Bart Weiss you know an all-american at the quarterback position uh, it was just led that offense to a T and we could score on anybody and you know with our bend to don't break off our defense we were able to hold people up keep them out of the end zone get them to punt you know to punt and and or to to kick field goals so it uh, it was just a phenomenal team effort well, personally, uh, for you individually, it got even better. Your senior year, 1987, you lead the nation in sacks with 24. That's unheard of to have 24 sacks in a single season. How were you so effective in getting to the quarterback, not once, not twice, but 24 times? I think one of the great things was playing in that Western Athletic Conference where they were very pass-happy, where you had offenses like BYU, Utah, Hawaii, where they threw the ball 65, sometimes 70% of the time. So you had a lot of opportunities to rush the quarterback. And I think it was, it was again, the guys that I played near, I, I owe a lot of my success to the guy that played right next to me, John Steed, who was our nose guard. Um, as a coach, has always affectionately called him a rolling ball of butcher knives he just did not quit and he was like a pinball playing in a pinball machine just would bounce between linemen but he created a lot of pressure and opened up uh, a lot of opportunities for me 
to be able to get the one-on-ones, to be able to get back to do that. And I think it's, again, I attribute from a personal perspective just that attitude that I had of growing up on the farm, that persistence, that never-say-die attitude and, and never quit, as well as the wrestling experience I had, um, just to have the, that, that stick to to want to get back there and get to the quarterback. You're named unanimous All-American that year. You won the Outland Trophy as the nation's top interior lineman. The Air Force Academy, as you alluded to, not known for producing big, powerful linemen. To have that trophy and all that it represents of you can go to a place like the Air Force Academy and succeed in ways you never dreamed possible, that has to mean a lot. Well, it meant a lot, and, and I think it, it opened the doors, particularly when I was able to go to, you know, eventually play in the NFL, that the Air Force, as well as the other service branches of military service, saw the benefits of having a, you know, individual athletes to be able to take it to that next level, so it helped in recruiting. But the one thing that I've always been adamant about in that regard, not to get off topic here, is but they still need to serve in some capacity. I, I do not agree with the current uh, um, policy where they can go directly to a professional sport. I think the individuals have to serve because that's the intent in, of attending a service academy is to train officers to to serve in our individual militaries and to be the best officers that we can first and foremost. But having had that recognition and having kind of helped pave that way, and Roger Stahlback did that for me 20 years prior to to my experience. Um, I think it's great for the academies, and, it, and it's great for them to be able to highlight individuals that you can come here and you can succeed in athletics, and you can compete at that elite level. Well, speaking of you being torn somewhat, the 1988 NFL draft comes around despite your commitment to the Air Force, uh, United States Air Force. Uh, the Dallas Cowboys still use a draft pick on you to secure your rights. Uh, was that tough to you to know that, I mean, the team, America's team wanted you, but of course you were, you were solid in your commitment elsewhere? Yeah, I was that token 11th round draft pick where it's, <laughs> you could tell how long ago that was. There is no more 11 rounds anymore. But I just ran into Gil Brandt, who was the Cowboys player or personnel director back in the day and just elected to the NFL Hall of Fame this past year. We reminisced about those those times, and you know, they he told me they were going to take a draft pick on me, and I was like, okay, you know, Gil, I appreciate it, you know, but I've I've got a military commitment to serve. But it was tough. It was tough for me mentally, and particularly where I went through pilot training at Shepard Air Force Base in Wichita Falls, Texas, which, which was just about an hour and a half outside the Dallas-Fort Worth area, that I would get, Gil would send me tickets that I could, my pilot training buddies and I would go down to Dallas on a weekend on a Saturday or Sunday and uh, you know, watch the Cowboys play, and I'd watch the guys in my draft class, Michael Irvin, Ken Norton Jr., out there competing. And for me, I was torn, torn emotionally because I wanted to be out there. I wanted to play. I wanted to see if I, quote, unquote, had the right stuff to play at the next level in the NFL. But I also knew to be an individual of integrity, and, and I gave my word that I would follow through with my commitment. I knew I had to do that. So I, I had to do a lot of processing internally and, and, and personally to be able to kind of come to terms with that.
Well, you, you go on and have a great, uh, successful career in the Air Force. You're an A-10 pilot assigned to the 92nd Tactical Fighter Squadron. Uh, you deployed a couple times to the Persian Gulf, flying 45 missions in your career. What was life like as a pilot back then as the United States entered war for the first time really in, in a while? And, you know, things were heating up in the, the Middle East. Things were uneasy in that part of the country. What was it like for you flying those missions? I tell you, set aside from you know war and combat, nobody wants to 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 go to war or to fight. We're we're there, you know, as a deterrent, and we will go, you know, if we are called and if need be. But I tell you, just from a pilot, a young lieutenant's perspective, flying in that era, you know, at the latter part of the Ronald Reagan era, where the military had the budgets to be able to fly and to to train, it was awesome. It was awesome. And, you know, the equipment to be able to fly the A-10, I was originally signed at RAF Bentwaters in the U.K., Bentwaters Woodbridge, the twin bases in the U.K., and we'd forward deploy to Germany. I could fly all over Germany at 500 feet. <laughs> and and to be able to train and actually fly every day almost, and then to be able to participate in the first Gulf War and set up the the, the north no-fly zone and be participate in operation, provide comfort where we were helping the Kurds. There was a sense of, you know, testing your metal again. Okay, do you have the right stuff? This is what you train to do. It's kind of like when you're going in football or in participating in athletics, when all you do is practice, 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 and you never get to play in the game, it's kind of, uh But when you finally get that opportunity, that's where, you know, the nerves, the butterflies, everything presents itself. And it was a great experience for me. It was a great growing experience for me to mature as an individual. But to see, you know, some of the carnage that can happen in war, granted it was from, you know, 5,000 feet or above, for my participation, but to be able to serve my country in that capacity, it was a tremendous honor. Were there any times, you flying high above, were there any times where, you know, it was like, this is real life, where you're concerned about you or your crew safety? Uh, every time, whether that even a, a training mission or combat mission, you're always putting your life at risk, you know, flying jets, because anything can happen. Um, but w- when you're flying over, you know, the Kurdish people, when we were seeing the effects of war where Saddam Hussein had dropped mustard gas and chemical weapons on their villages a couple years prior to this, and you had tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people would flee their villages to go into the mountains and stay in these encampments where they all they had was what they could carry on their back. And you can just see from that altitude just, you know, the carnage of what can happen when dictators attack their own people. And that's, to me, where it was, okay, we're doing this. We're, we're here for the right reasons. And, you know, we are here to stop evil in the world. And that's, I'll always sign up for that. In 1992, you had the opportunity to chase your other dream, and that's playing in the NFL. You joined the Dallas Cowboys as a 26-year-old rookie. How difficult was it for you to get up to speed and back into football shape, both physically and mentally? It was probably the biggest challenge that I've ever had to uh, overcome and to achieve 
for the fact of having not played football in four years, leaving a level of competition at a collegiate level, but then playing against professional athletes. And, and a lot of the guys that I played against were future Hall of Famers, and they were the best of the best. And at that time, nobody knew that we were going to be an eventual three-time Super Bowl champions. But then the physical aspect, too, of, of leaving England, where I was based, where the average mean summer temperature would be 75 to 78 degrees, going to Austin, Texas for training camp where it's in the upper 90s and 60-plus percent humidity, I thought I was in hell. <laughs> Legitimately. I would have to get IVs. I'd lose, I could sweat in a two-hour, two-a-day practice, lose 12 to 14 pounds of water weight in that period of time. So it's, it, you know, to struggle with, you know, the mental aspects of why did I do this to continue to, to compete, knowing that you're going to go out there and, and it's going to be, you know, literally hell on earth just with battling and trying to make the team in the position. So, it, it, you know, kind of proud of myself that I was able to achieve that, and it was a, it, it was difficult. Uh, you ultimately played nine years with the Cowboys during one of the great dynasty runs in NFL history, three Super Bowls in four years. You played with your future Hall of Famers and some of the all-time greats, Troy Aikman, Emmitt Smith, Michael Irvin, Charles Haley, Larry Allen. When you think back on those times, those are, those are some big-time characters that all molded together to pull in one direction, achieve that success. What stands out the most to you about those times with the Cowboys during those glory years? You know what, you can go back to that earlier question you asked me regarding what made that 1985 Air Force Academy team stand out, and it was just that, it was the aspect of team. Those Dallas Cowboys teams in those early 90s were, I was never around a group of more selfless individuals. Individuals that were there for one purpose, that was to win Super Bowls. And they put, you know, they understood that their individual performance had to work in the confines of of team where they fit in the game plan and yeah everybody you know Emmett wanted the ball Michael wanted the ball too but they understood what their role was and they were very supportive of offense defense special teams everybody that um, it, again it's kind of rare that they had several starters playing special teams and normally those are the backup guys that a lot of times play special teams but we knew the role we knew what we wanted to we needed to accomplish and it was just a very looking back now and seeing it, you know, winning three Super Bowls in four years, how, how difficult that is. I mean, the Cowboys have only made the playoffs, of, you know, a handful of times in the past 25 years since that time, since we won the last one, 26 years now. So, you know, as a former alumni, it, it makes that experience that we had that much more special. And today, when we get together, um, whether for alumni functions or just gathering at different Cowboy games, you know, very rarely do we get together and talk about, oh, you remember that play or you remember that game. It's always about, hey, you remember the time in the locker room. You remember the time when Charles did this or, or when uh, Nate did this or whatever. And those are the things that you laugh about. And that was really what really bonded us together as a team as we had great relationships both in and out of the locker room. Take me back to your first Super Bowl. Uh, that's less than a year after you were uh, you were flying missions and you see a flyover at a Super Bowl. Was, was that a surreal experience for you, knowing where you had been less than a year? You had worked your tail off to get to this point, and now you're in a Super Bowl and you see a military flyover in a Super Bowl? It kind of where worlds collide. Mm -hmm. It was a phenomenal experience, and I can't remember... <laughs> 
to a lot of my teammates, every time we'd be at a game where there would be a flyover during the national anthem, my teammates would kind of look over at me to see, you know, what I was doing, what I was thinking, and, you know, kind of ask, what plane was that? No. <laughs> and it, it, it's cool. Because, you know, growing up, every young man, every young boy wants to, you know, we always play Cowboys and Indians. You play Army, you play soldiers, and you want to play, you know, be a professional football player, a professional athlete of some sort. And to be able to have that opportunity to do both was, was a great uh, experience for me. During your time with the Cowboys, you continued to do work with the Air Force Reserves while playing football. How did you find the time? Well, they were the Air Force. I was in the Air Force Reserves as an IMA reservist, and the the duties that I had and the job that I did was basically being a spokesperson for the Air Force, for the Air Force Academy. I guess for all branches of military too, because I would speak at different congressional staffer forums about the benefits of the academy and what the academies had to offer and what what it was like to to fly missions and. To you know, talk about and to represent, to be able to still wear the Dallas Cowboy uniform as well as wearing my U.S. military Air Force uniform. Uh, again, it was, I keep saying it over. It was a great experience and a great opportunity. I was very proud to serve, and I'm glad I had the opportunity to do both. But since leaving football, you've been elected to countless Hall of Fames, including the College Football Hall of Fame in 06. Uh, in the College Football Hall of Fame, you're joined by Brock Strom, Fisher DeBerry, Scott Thomas, now Ernie Jennings. For the Air Force Academy to have five Hall of Famers, that's remarkable, don't you think? I think it is. I think it is. And it's just a testament to the programs that they've had over the years. And that's what I, I appreciate about the College Hall of Fame because they, they take into that aspect, that component of not just what you did on the field, but it's, it's how you served your community, what you've kind of done post-career, and where you've taken your life. And because they hold those Hall of Famers up as role models for other athletes to aspire to be that holistic individual, individual's integrity of character, not just on the field, but it matters what you do off the field, too. So it's a great testimony to all service academies when they can have those athletes that are recognized for what we've done in the service that we've been able to achieve and serve our country. You're now an accomplished motivational speaker addressing executive audiences across America. Talk to organizations like America Airlines, Bank of America, General Motors, Citigroup. What sort of messages do you convey to those in the corporate world who certainly can learn a lot from your experiences and then you know, use that in their everyday personal and professional lives? My passion has always been aspects of identity, knowing who you are as an individual, as well then following it on to living that life of excellence and doing that with through integrity and, and, and character. And that's what I try to lay the, relate to the audience is the aspect of, you know, what you do does not define who you are. But to go out there, how do you fit in the roles of your team? How do you impact your the culture? of your community, and what are your core values? I mean, these are the, it's the foundational aspects to, to live a life of success as an individual to that of, of a corporate entity. It's, it's the same for both. You have to know who you are before you can accomplish anything in life. Well, you've uh, accomplished uh, many things as an author. You've got uh, three books, Forces of Character, Rules of Engagement, It Takes Commitment, all books that you can find in bookstores or on Amazon. How satisfying has it been to document your experiences, to get others involved in your book? And do you have a favorite book? Is there one that speaks to you more than many of the others? 
first of all, I, th- I thought when I wanted to write a book, do I really have a valid message? And that's where a lot of I get a lot of inquiries from potential authors of why do you write your book? And it's like when you have something that you want to say, then go forward with it. And, and I think that my last book, Forces of Character, was the one for me that I wanted to show that character is ubiquitous, that, that character is a choice. And having conversations with 10 individuals um, on their character journey in life, you know, names you'd recognize, Roger Staubach, Troy Aikman, Jason Garrett, Greg Popovich, coach for the Spurs, former Air Force Academy graduate, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. I interviewed a, an astronaut, a survivor of Auschwitz, an international human rights attorney from former communist Romania. CEO for the National Center on Fathering and a homelessness expert, you know, in the Dallas area. And whether they were male, female, black, white, up and down the economic scale, their message was pretty much universal of that selfless aspect of, of serving others and, you know, doing what's right. And, and that's what the message I want to relate to the next generation. You know, for me right now, I've been able to achieve a lot of different successes in life, but it's now I wanted to pursue the significance, okay? You can be whatever you want to be, but there's a right way and a wrong way of doing it. Sure. You're also involved in, in commercial real estate now. What sort of projects does your business focus on? We do corporate services, so tenant representation. We do development. We're building uh, medical office buildings. And then we also do investment sales, both on the buy and sell side. So we do it in office products. We do industrial. And then, again, medical office. So we're the North Texas region where we're at is, is booming, but we do deals all over the country. And it's fun to be a part. Again, it's it's a team. And I, we, we recruit specifically former athletes as well as prior military guys because they know what it's like to work on a team to again that that individual effort to succeed to never say no to never you know never say die to get up you're going to face rejection but keep on keeping on and how do you get better each and every day and it's just like being in that locker room and and um inspiring the individuals that work for us to to rise to a higher noble purpose or cause well, staying true to it, to your word and, and to what's important to you, you are very active in, in the Dallas area and abroad in philanthropy. What sort of causes um, are, you, are you most involved in, do you love to get involved in? What speaks to your heart when you want to give some of your time and, and your message to when it, when it comes to philanthropy? My two main things are, are mentorship or discipleship, as well as helping those who can't help themselves, so at-risk families. So I get involved. I started a men's ministry called Wingman 15 years ago, and it's all about training, equipping young men to realize what it means to be you know, a man of faith, a Christian in today's culture. And then I also help with uh, different organizations like the North Texas Food Bank and local organizations that that help at-risk families where they just are having difficult time making ends meet and trying to impact so that their kids can have food on the table and get to school and to become productive citizens. Well, Chad, you're uh, you're much appreciated by many. You're appreciated by the Mountain West Conference, by the Air Force Academy. You're uh, a great American. We're honored to have you here. Thank you for your service, and thank you for sharing your story with us here on At the Peak. Jesse, I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. That's Chad Hennings, former college football player at the Air Force Academy, college 
Football Hall of Famer, Air Force veteran from the Air Force Academy. Thanks for listening to the At The Peak podcast. For more episodes, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. For comprehensive coverage and information on your favorite Mountain West teams, student-athletes, and coaches, including how to follow along on our social media channels, please visit themw.com, the official website of the Mountain West. Thanks again for listening to the At The Peak podcast.